The Living Traditions Festival is back Friday, May 17th through Sunday, May 19th at Washington Square Park in downtown Salt Lake City. You will find a global food court, live music, performances, art, workshops, Bohemian Brewery, and stuff for kids. Full disclosure, this is my favorite Salt Lake Festival. For details and to see the full program, visit livingtraditionsfestival.com or find them on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. Elementary student enrollment in the Salt Lake City School District has dropped nearly 30% in the past decade. And the district thinks it will have to close some elementary schools as a result. But which ones? So far, this process has a lot of us reeling. Spreadsheets are already circulating, parents are pissed, and theories are being traded. But whose opinion matters most? It's Tuesday, October 3rd. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Yandari Chatwin, Communications Director for the Salt Lake City School District. The district is looking at seven elementary schools for closure due to declining enrollment. What I want to know is, why is it bad when enrollment declines? Isn't it good to have small classroom sizes? Yeah, that is a great question. The thing is that small schools doesn't always mean small classroom sizes. So right now we have schools where there's only one third grade class or one sixth grade class, and that does not give students the ideal environment for learning. It doesn't give teachers the ideal environment for collaboration. And really the main purpose, there are a lot of reasons for engaging us in this school closure process, but the most important reason is to make sure that kids have as close as we can get to the ideal for their academic setting and that we can give access to students to these academic opportunities no matter where in the city they go to school. Who determines what the ideal is for their academic setting? Because I feel like one third grade classroom, like some parents spend a lot of money to have their kid be in a teeny tiny class. Yeah, well, the classes aren't necessarily teeny tiny. So if there's one class in the whole school for your grade level, it's more likely that that's a pretty large class. So like I'm saying, small schools don't always translate to small classroom sizes. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do have an ideal range. We have a target range in the district that we shoot for. And for our K-3 students, that's about 24 students. And so we're going to look at the numbers of students, and we're going to look at the different configurations that could possibly work to get us as close as possible to those ideal scenarios for our students. We won't be 100% everywhere, but we're going to try to do our very best to set our students up for success. Well, on that note, I mean, the Salt Lake City School District's website says 400 to 550 students is the quote-unquote right size for schools. Why is that? Yeah, that's a great question. That is the type of school that would allow for about three classes per grade level in your general education or neighborhood classes. It's a size where there's enough uh, staff to collaborate, to have really engaging professional learning communities, um, and to do lots of enrichment activities with students. It's also the size of school that can support a special district program like a magnet extended learning program. These are our programs for gifted students, students who 
are achieving at high levels academically who might need a little more rigor in their curriculum. Or a dual language immersion program. In our district, we have um, both of those programs at a couple of different schools, and we want to make sure that we can give kids across the city access to those programs as much as we can. So the school district is considering a variety of factors in deciding which schools to close, like enrollment and population data, proximity of other schools, and of course, community input. Now, reporting from the Salt Lake Tribune as of recent shows that the most consistent factor appears to be when the school was built. The majority of the schools that have been selected or shortlisted are 35 years or older. Why is that an important factor for the district? So I want to just point out something just to make sure I'm not making assumptions. Are you referencing the Andy Larson piece? I am. So that's actually an opinion piece. Um, I know Andy does do a lot of data reporting um, in addition to his sports reporting for the trip, Mm -hmm. but that piece was an opinion piece. So a lot of that is Andy's opinion. The age of the building is one of the things we're considering, and it matters because of a couple of things. One, all of our buildings are compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act because that's important, obviously. Um, Some of the schools have been around longer than the ADA has, and they're grandfathered in. But if we were to look at some of our buildings through 2023 standards, a lot of our buildings don't meet that new standard for accessibility. We want to make sure that kids have schools that are accessible to them no matter what disabilities they may be facing. Mm-hmm. Um, the age of the building also matters in terms of the logistics of looking at the lifespan of that school. When we build a new school, we anticipate it'll last between 60 to 70 years. So it's just a mathematical factor to weigh in. Will we need to replace this building sooner than the other building? Will this building last us for a couple more decades or will we need to look at rebuilding in the next 10 years? Um, a lot of these older buildings also are different in the design of lighting. Um, There is research that shows that having natural light during the school day in the classroom does impact students' learning abilities. Uh, We want to maximize that as much as we can, and so having that access to natural light matters, and not all of our buildings offer that ideal scenario for students. Yeah. I mean, I believe that as someone who wants to live in a home that's full of natural light, right? And Mm -hmm. it does make a ton of sense to me. Building schools and repairing schools is incredibly expensive. We're certainly seeing that right now with, for example, the repairs that are needed at West High School, right? But we are talking about elementary schools today. But I do want to say, I mean, to Andy's point in this piece, yes, he is an opinion writer, but you've shortlisted seven schools of the six schools in the district that are were built more than 35 years ago. Five of them have been selected of that seven in the shortlist. So it does feel like it is an important theme for the district is age of the building. Yeah, it's one of the many factors that have been considered in determining that list of seven schools and one of the several factors that will be looked at moving forward. Yeah. So one of the other factors that's listed is community input. And I mean, I'm seeing even just on Instagram where accounts are popping up and things like that. I mean, it seems like parents at nearly every one of these seven schools that's been shortlisted or schools that have been studied for closure are campaigning to keep their school open. Mm -hmm. So if you're getting the same feedback across the board, like how does it weigh out in the decision-making process? 
You know, the feedback is helpful when parents flag for us specific concerns with their specific neighborhood. For example, there are parents in their school who have flagged that getting to a neighboring school would be extremely difficult. That's the sort of thing we need to take into account because we can look at a map, but a, a map doesn't show us the specific terrain or the detail of the routes as closely as someone who lives in that neighborhood would know that. There was also a comment from someone who said that their school was the only green space in that part of the city. Things like that are important for us to take into account. Um, and we encourage people to keep submitting that feedback to us, especially when you're seeing concerns that maybe only you're going to see. We need that flagged for us so that we're not making a decision just based on data and charts and numbers. Yeah. I mean, I want to assume that for any parents listening right now that have been in that comment box submitting feedback and feel like they're yelling into the void. It is a little mm -hmm. affirming to know that you all are taking these like this kind of anecdotal evidence into account, because if I'm looking at the spreadsheet and it's just a data crunching thing, the question I would have to ask is, and at the risk of being crude, like whose voice is more important? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one thing where we are doing as parents are sharing their concerns is if we're hearing a lot more from, let's say, school A and we're hearing a lot less from school B, uh, well, the concerns that parents at school A have, some of them might apply to school B. So if someone flags a concern for a specific school, we're looking to see, is that a concern at the other six schools? We don't want community members to feel like their school staying open or closed depends on the number of parents who speak up because that's that's not how this works. The, there are a number of factors that go into, into play. That community input is such a critical part of it um, and is something that is so important to our Board of Education who will make the final decision. So we do want people to please continue submitting that information and try to look through the lens of what are the challenges that maybe cannot be overcome if your school were to close. That's the type of feedback that will be most helpful in this process. Yeah. I mean, certainly one of the things that's come up a lot so far in this process is frustration, right? Like mm -hmm. parents, other community members, school community members seem incredibly frustrated by this process particularly around communication with the district. Are there concerns that the district could lose even more students if frustrated parents, who of course can afford it, move their kids over to private or charter schools? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely possible. There has been a lot of confusion, especially with the first part of our process and with the Boundary Options Committee and how these seven schools were the ones that were recommended to the board for further study. And those questions are valid. And we are working and doing our best to be as transparent as we can. Folks can go on our website right now and look at the data that we're looking at, look at maps that are being used right now as we analyze uh, different scenarios and look at each individual school. We want the public to have access to as much of that data as possible. Um, obviously, certain types of data, you know, we need to protect student privacy, but as much as we can share, we will share and we're grateful for people who keep flagging those things so we know what else we need to put out. I want to pause quickly and ask you a clarifying question because you are using yeah. the term we a lot. And yeah. <laughs> I know what it's like to be a publicist <laughs> in a communications role. And I think I also know what it's like to be on the other side of a complicated process or even just customer service line. <laughs> and you're like, who is we? Who are yes. you? Who is yes. we? Like, who is the we in this process at the district? Yeah, 
I'll explain the we. There are several we's. So we have a director of boundaries and planning who is charged with overseeing this process, um, looking at the, the data. This person led the boundary options committee in their work to narrow down the study list to these seven schools. Um, he is a critical component of the process. He, there was also a boundary options committee. That was a committee of 13 individuals who were appointed by our former interim superintendent, Martin Bates. And those people were appointed due to the expertise that they brought to the table. Some of them had background as classroom teachers, as school administrators. Some, you know, there were folks from a special ed expertise, from our transportation department, from our information systems, just the, the different areas of the district that would be needed when you're considering school closures or looking at transition planning, um, bringing those experts together. Those are the first set of the we, <laughs> the committee of 13. Okay. Um, from there, they made a recommendation to the Board of Education to study these seven schools further. Um, the Board of Education is another we, um, and they voted to approve that study list. So now we're, we're in this second phase of the process where we're further studying the list. And our boundary and planning director is still leading that, that task, consulting with those experts from the district and with district leadership. And when I say district leadership, that's the superintendent and the superintendent's cabinet. We're working to analyze data and working through different scenarios and trying to come up with the best recommendations possible for the board. At the end of the process, um, likely sometime in January, the Board of Education will take a final vote on which schools will close, um, how boundaries may realign. Uh, so at the end of the day, it is the Board of Education's process, but there are a lot of district leaders who are working to shape that recommendation. Whenever posture comes up in conversation, we all do that thing where we immediately sit upright and pull our shoulders back. Did you do it just now? I did a movement session with Chandler at Embodied Patients, and after a few gentle corrections, I was surprised to find sitting up straight is incredibly easy. Chandler's practice combines over a decade of study in yoga, Pilates, and the Alexander Technique. So why should you invest in your posture? Let's start with the link between better posture and better breathing. Whether you're returning to activity from an injury, looking to manage pain, or just have the sense things could be a little easier, Chandler will teach you to create sustainable movement habits so that you can enjoy the things you love for longer. Maybe that's running marathons. Maybe it's walking the dog. Visit embodiedpatients.com to book a session with Chandler and give yourself the gift of your own attention. Spring is when leases expire, and if you're looking for a new or better apartment situation, here's the scoop at Ico Fort Union. Fort Union is Ico's newest build in Cottonwood Heights off 1300 East and 6720 South. And as they say in real estate, location, location, location. Ico Fort Union puts you 10 minutes from the mouth of Big Cottonwood Canyon and central to all the Fort Union shops and restaurants, but the complex is located on a dead-end street, so you get peace. Ico Fort Union offers studio, one, two, and three-bedroom apartment homes, plus these very cool three-bedroom work-live apartments, so if you're starting something new, you can live above your business space. Amenities include a pet spa, a spin loft, a bike hub, and EV charging stations. And they are signing leases right now. So visit liveatfortunion.com for a tour.
Let's get back into some of the anxieties around this process. So we know that schools serve a lot of community roles. They provide food, after-school programs. They're even emergency shelters at times. How will the district fill those gaps? So like I said, we're looking at a lot of different factors to make sure that the recommendations that we make um, don't have too great of an impact in one part of the city over another. So things that we're looking at right now, for example, if folks go to our website and look at the maps that we've been looking at, there is one map that shows all the elementary schools in the district, and it shows a circle around each school a one mile radius out from that school location. Um, Per state law, we would have to bus any students who live more than a mile and a half from their school. Um, doing that exercise, looking at a one mile radius gives us a picture of what that one and a half mile drive would look like. Cause obviously not everybody lives a straight line away from their school. Yeah. So we look at a one mile radius to estimate um, who outside that circle might need to be bused to, to a different location. So that helps us, a map like that helps us see where there are any gaps. If we close these schools and these schools, are we leaving an education desert in a certain part of our city, we're trying to avoid that. So where where there are schools that might be clustered closer together, we're just making note of that. And then looking at other factors to see what can be ruled out and what might be possible. Well, I have to ask you because similar to the Salt Lake City Airport, the Salt Lake City School District is a major stakeholder in Salt Lake City Corporation. How are you all working with the city? you know, capital T, capital C in this process? Like, are there ways where the city can step in to fill some of these gaps? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The city has been an important partner and I'll say the capital T city electeds and also (laughs) the staff members. Our director of boundaries and planning has had some critical conversations with their transportation department, looking at any upcoming projects and construction and trying to determine what are the major thoroughfares in our city that need to be taken into account when we're looking at safe walking routes for kids. They've given us a heads up of changes that are coming. Um, He's also met, this isn't the city, but just another agency in the community, uh, met with UTA on some construction changes coming to 700 East and other parts of the city. So we cannot rely on just the district's information. We're grateful for the help of the city and other agencies who are, are giving us that that information now to make a, a really informed recommendation to the board so they can make an informed decision. Um, and then the city, we've, we've had so much support from our elected leaders and we're grateful for that because they are also aware of how important the schools are to their communities and their constituents. And so they're, they've let us know that they stand ready to support us with whatever is needed throughout this process. And we will work together with them on filling some of those needs that you referenced. I mean, if a school is closed, quote unquote, and the building is mm-hmm. ostensibly emptied, who determines what becomes of the building? The district or the city? The Board of Education. Um, the Board of Education could, or the district, I guess, could direct um, a, a use. And I'll give you an example. Um, over Just over 20 years ago, Roslyn Heights Elementary was closed. That building is still in the possession of the district. It's been leased by Salt Lake School for the Performing Arts for the last few years. They've vacated the property because the building is no longer really usable. So that building is getting knocked down this fall. And that property, the recommendation that the district has is to turn that into athletic fields. The Board of Education has approved additional sports in the last few years, like boys and girls lacrosse, Mm -hmm. but there hasn't been any additional practice space provided for that. So that property won't be a school anymore, but it'll serve a different 
function in the district to meet district needs to better support our students. If there came a time where the Board of Education votes to sell a building, the city does have first right of refusal, um, and then they could determine what might happen with that property. But that's kind of the process. I guess the last question on sort of what it would look like to empty a school, what happens to the teachers or lunch ladies, fellow like employees of that institution if a school closes? Are they fired? Are they laid off? So our HR team is working on a transition plan already. We don't know how many schools or how many staff might be impacted, but we are beginning to lay the groundwork for what that'll look like. And really the goal will be to reduce um, any layoffs or reduction in force as much as possible. We're, we're hopeful that through attrition or retirements or just natural changes that happen every year that we will be able to minimize that. For teachers, though, especially for teachers in those special district programs or, for example, if a special education program were to move, they would move with their students in those special district programs. Um, and in theory, the ratio should be pretty close because the we try to match a certain number of students to a certain number of teachers. We're hopeful that those line up pretty closely so that we can reduce as much as possible the need to reduce our force. We value our educators. We value every staff member. You referenced our child nutrition workers, our, our other staff members who, who make our schools the welcoming places that they are. We value them and we're, we're gonna do everything possible to minimize any reduction in force. So the public comment period in this process continues through November at least. Then the school board will try to take action you mentioned in January, could be December. Moving forward, you know, I heard you say that phase one of this process has brought forward some tensions, some frustrations. So Mm -hmm. moving forward, what are the district's goals when it comes to communicating through this process? Yeah, we are, are hopeful that we through these conversations, we have a series of public meetings that we're, we're hosting. Um, you referenced public comment period. Uh, we actually will have two dedicated public comment periods in November. Um, we'll be holding board meetings in different parts of the city so that these public comment periods are more accessible to um, constituents who don't live right by where the district office is. And then there will be a public hearing in December that'll be held at West High School. And um, we, we want that public comment to continue. But through the remainder of the process, we hope that community members will see why this process is important to the overall educational goals of the district. Our superintendent is is new. She's just come in and she has a grand vision that Salt Lake City will be the flagship district in our state, that we will lead in terms of student growth and achievement and equity and access to opportunities. She wants to build career and college pathways for our kids. Part of the purpose of of the school closure process, this right-sizing of our elementary schools is to lead to exactly that, to provide equity of access to these academic opportunities and to make sure that we're setting up our kids for success from the first day that they enter our doors. Yeah. Well, I mean, the past few years for the Salt Lake City School District, I feel like have been intense. (laughs) I mean, I would being totally honest, say I think public trust in the school district has been challenged in the past few years. And on top of all of that, like, I don't envy this job. This is a nightmare process. (laughs) Why not hire a consultant to take on the questions from parents to take on some of this communications process? Like, why not bring in more hands to take on this process in the form of like a consulting group or a consultancy. Like it feels like the district is taking on a lot right now. 
Yeah, we actually are looking at at doing that because we want to make sure that our communication is what it needs to be, that community members feel like they're receiving that. We've put out a lot of information, but if community members still have questions, that tells us that we need to try something different to get that information out. So we are looking at that. We are we are tackling a lot. We've in the last year alone, we've brought on a new superintendent. We're, we've looked at feasibility studies for two different high schools. We have community members asking about an additional one. Um, we're looking at these elementary uh, schools. And, you know, even when a final vote happens in a few months, we'll need to execute really great transition plans. So we are mindful of the load that, that we've got right now. We want to execute well. So we are looking at possibly bringing on some additional help for that. Well, and I hear you saying that you're already hearing, I can imagine you are already hearing a lot from parents. And when you and Mm -hmm. I have talked in the past, I've heard you say, we want to hear from even more community members, even if you don't Mm -hmm. think of yourself as a member of a school community, you are, you're a taxpayer in Salt Lake City, right? And like closing schools also means that school boundaries could shift. So even if your school isn't being looked at for closure, you could be impacted as a family or as a student or a parent or a teacher by this process. How do you get everyone engaged? Like that engagement in and of itself is also just a huge lift. Yeah, it is. It's part of why we are looking at bringing on some additional support, but we're trying to reach people in the ways that we can. Um, It's part of why we're having one of our community meetings run exclusively in Spanish, why we make translation available at every single meeting that we have, why we also live stream our meetings and um, share information on social media, because we know that different community members will access information in different ways. We want to try to hit as many of those places as we can. And I'm really glad that you brought up the the piece about boundary changes, because you're right. Um, even if your child's school doesn't close, that doesn't mean that you won't be impacted by boundary changes. And so we're truly are grateful for that input. It's helping us to make this a better process. Yandari Chatwin, Communications Director for the Salt Lake City School District. Thank you so much for your time and for answering all my questions. Thanks, Sally. The seven elementary schools being considered for closure are Emerson, Hawthorne, M. Lynn Benyon, Mary W. Jackson, Newman, Riley, and Wasatch. The Salt Lake City School District is hosting a handful of informational meetings in the coming months where you can get questions answered about this process and share your experiences as a teacher, a parent, a student, or a public school funder, aka taxpayer. The next one is this Saturday, October 7th from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. at Glendale Middle School. We've got the full list of upcoming meetings on our Instagram account at CityCastSLC. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. 